Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the Cold Fusion Now podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in the science, engineering, and business of Cold Fusion Leonard. I'm your host, Ruby Carrot. Our guest today is Dr. Melvin Miles, an electrochemist and Leonard experimentalist. He spent two years at Dixie College, now Dixie State University, and then received a bachelor's degree at Brigham Young University and a PhD at the University of Utah in physical chemistry, minoring in physics. Following his degree, he was awarded a NATO fellowship to work as a postdoc for one year with Dr. Gerischer in Munich, Germany. Melvin Miles was a Navy electrochemist in 1989 when the cold fusion announcement occurred and was working at the China Lake Laboratory when he measured helium as a nuclear product from active cold fusion cells producing excess heat. Dr. Miles also spent a year at the New Hydrogen Energy Laboratory in Japan and generated excess heat again using the co-deposition method. He has recently challenged the American Chemical Society's Journal of Physical Chemistry ban on publishing cold fusion papers by proposing several mainstream referees to review one of his papers. He has also published a trove of letters documenting 16 years of collaboration between himself, Melvin Miles, and Martin Fleischmann, the co-discoverer of cold fusion. Dr. Melvin Miles, thank you for being with us. Okay, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Dr. Miles, you've been working on the problem of cold fusion since 1989, and I have documented some of your early discoveries and experiences in a Navy Leonard Research video series available on our website. Can you briefly describe to our new listeners what is the importance of experimentally measuring helium when you measure excess heat in a cold fusion cell, which you did yourself in 1990? Yeah, when the cold fusion first came out, the announcement in 1989, uh, one of the major questions that critics had, if it's really fusion, what, where are the products? Where are the neutrons? They thought neutrons should have been there, or, or, or maybe tritium and so on. And, and so the, their big argument against cold fusion was there wasn't a product that explained the excess heat. The tritium was too low to explain the excess heat. Some people measured tritium, but uh, what was responsible for the excess heat? And, uh, and that's the reason I went into looking at helium. We, uh, Dr. Swinger, Nobel Prize winner, had proposed in a paper that the reaction went to helium-3 and there's no radiation. And that sounded interesting, also no neutrons. So I collaborated with Ben Bush, who was at the University of Texas at the time, because he had instrumentation to measure helium, which I didn't have at China Lake, at least not helium-4, which is a small molecule. And so we set up experiments where I would run the experiment, get excess heat, collect samples, and send them to him for analysis. And I didn't know how it turned out. I, I was hoping maybe it'd be helium-3, but we found out when we had excess heat, he could measure helium-4, and that's the way it got started. And so that answered the question that, what is the main product? It turns out to be helium-4, which is very difficult to detect because... You you have to use a mass spec, a special instrumentation to measure it. 
it doesn't. There's no uh, uh, no other way, no other good way to measure it, and it also is present in the atmosphere at very low levels. I think 5.6 parts per million, and so I I think our work, at least to me and people who looked at it carefully, it was convincing evidence that the major product was helium four, and and that's why nobody had found any major product up to that time. This is reported that in did experiments in 1990 uh, and reported it in 1991 at the second conference in Como one, at one place and also published a paper on it in a, a preliminary note in the Journal of Electrical Analytical Chemistry in about February 1991. So that's the background. That's the reason mm-hmm. it's important, in my opinion. And... The key element is that the number of helium atoms that you measured matched the excess heat that you were measuring. Yeah, as close as you could expect from the experimental error. And because uh, there's experimental error in both the heat measurement and in the helium measurement. But one of the best results where they measured the helium to 0.1 part per billion, Brian Oliver, in a, I didn't have a lot of excess heat, but I had 100 milliwatts. And that one experiment came out very close to the correct amount, which is, if I remember correctly, 2.6 about 2.6 times 10 to the 11th, helium-4 atoms per second per watt of excess energy. Hmm. So it fit quite well with the D plus D fusion. The, the better the measurements, the closer it fit. Well, Dr. Miles, your work was very exciting to Martin Fleischman, and you ended up having a long collaborative relationship, working on uh, projects, papers, and even strategies to deal with the bias against this work. You have just published a collection of letters on Leonard.org that Martin Fleischman wrote to you, which documents a part of this history. These letters contain science analyses, unpublished rebuttals to critics who were widely published at the time, as well as Martin Fleischmann's personal feelings as this work was wholly rejected by mainstream science. Talk about these letters. What does this collection add to the historical record of this Lenner science? Okay, let me just give a little background. Uh, uh, you know, I, when Coach Houston was announced, I knew of Martin Fleischmann and Stanley Pons. They were pretty well-known in electrochemistry, but I'd never met them. And at the first international conference in Salt Lake City, ICCF1, I gave my paper, and it, uh, I realized now it fit very well with what Fleischmann and Pons had reported. And, and, and uh, I never met Pons, but he came over to me right after my paper and really congratulated me on the paper. That's where I first met him. I never got to know Fleischmann very well until ICCF2 in Italy. Then I, I got a chance to talk to him and meet him better. And, and I think uh, about a year later in 1992, uh, I knew he was going to visit Bob Nowak at the Office of Naval Research. And so I sent a letter to Bob Nowak with questions to ask. They could give, give the letter to Martin because they had questions about experiments that I would like to have answered. And and anyway, Martin wrote me a long answer, a very, very long letter, and thoroughly answered my questions, plus a lot more. And 
so that's how, our, how we started with our correspondence mm-hmm. in 1992. And then it continued. And, uh, and I was surprised how long letters he wrote. He just wrote very detailed letters, some things that he had not published. I, I think the reason for this, I think Martin realized a lot of what he, what he wanted to say would never be published. And I think he was hoping that I'd say the letters and someday they would be published. So I, and that's what I did. I knew these letters were important for the history of the science of co-fusion. And so I've saved the letters. Some are quite long, almost like a manuscript, actually, some of the mm. letters. And, and so uh, this continued over the years and uh, up until about 2008 where Martin was getting old and not not as able to think as clearly as before, and that's sort of where it stopped. But, but a lot of these letters contain many things important to the history of cold fusions that are not known otherwise, things that were going on, things they were doing, things, thoughts they had on cold fusion experiments, the important knowledge even today to understand what they were thinking, uh, were experiments, the, the, uh, the electrode material to use, they came out, Martin in his letters explains why you want to restrict oxygen. Uh, the electrodes they had made at Johnson Matthey were, at the request of Martin Fleischmann, they were made under a blanket of cracked ammonia, which is nitrogen and hydrogen and excludes oxygen. And any oxygen in the palladium during the melting of the palladium would react with hydrogen form water vapor and we taken out of the palladium. And so a lot, lot of this, a lot of details of why of what you had to do to get active electrodes are detailed in these letters. And Martin knew all this, but it never got published in this. It is revealed in these letters, all these important facts. Because Roswell is really helping to fill out in making these letters available. Yes, and uh, for our listeners, you can go to leonard.org, that's L-E-N-R dot O-R-G, and that is maintained by Jed Rothwell. It is the Leonard Library Archive, and that's where this collection of letters between Melvin Miles and Martin Fleischman can be found. Well, Dr. Miles, I want to ask you about your recent challenge to the Journal of Physical Chemistry. What is it that caused you to write the editor of that journal? Okay, I'll go back and give a little history on that paper. Uh, It has kind of a long history, actually. Going back to John Bockers, who was writing to me a lot a year or two before he passed away, but he asked me one time, how what could the fly he knew I was a student of Henry Iring and he wanted to know what the Iring theory could say about cold fusion. And so I looked into it and I was surprised if I used one of the ironing equations for the rate constant and used the rate constant we get from the typical cold fusion experiment at three hundred degrees Kelvin. I just put that rate constant in, I could calculate the Gibbs free energy of activation. And, and it is related to the activation energy. And I was surprised that it came out very close to what people were measuring for the diffusion of deuterium in palladium. And uh, I mean, you could argue that's just a chance, but you know, cold fusion, there's hundreds of things that might have happened by chance, but I think it's very significant that it came out so close to what's experimentally measured for the diffusion of de- deuterons or de- deuterium in palladium. 
and it shows that the that the rate determining step in cold fusion in palladium is the diffusion of deuterons from one position into another position where there is an uh, 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 active region or nuclear active environment or whatever you want to call it where this reaction takes place. In order to, for the reaction takes place, the deuterons or deuterium atoms have to diffuse into this active region or zone. I call it an active reaction zone, another name for it. We don't know exactly what the conditions are, but I think it's a region that has a very high concentration of deuterons and therefore a lot of electrons are attracted to that region as well. And things are then totally different in inside the palladium under these conditions and outside the palladium, like another Nobel Prize winner, or the same one I mentioned before actually, Julian Swinger, uh, he, he said that the uh, conditions for cold fusion are not the same as hot fusion, and that is inside the palladium. So that's a little bit of the background. I got into this by by uh, uh, Bachris years ago, wanting to know what I could find, learn by applying uh, iron theory to cold fusion. And, and, uh, and I gave a paper on this in China last year, and also on a poster on in Japan, ICCF 21, not 21, but ICCF 20, in uh and I, I wrote up a paper about it for the journal Condensed Matter Nuclear Science. I sent it to my research advisor, who is the son of Henry Iring. Actually, my first scientific paper, I worked with both Henry Iring and his son, uh, Edward Iring, or we called him Ted Iring. And uh, uh, Henry Iring's passed away, but his son read my paper and he thought it was outstanding. He said his dad would have loved to have seen that paper. Uh, you know, to me, it almost proves cold fusion is real, but uh, not everybody sees it that way. Anyway, I, I submitted the journal Condensed Matter Nuclear Science, and I got a, a very negative reviewer. Of course, we don't know who the reviewer is, but he didn't understand the iron theory at all. He thought it was just an equation. But there's a whole book. There's a whole book on the iron theory, iron rate theory, and I spent an entire year in graduate school with Henry Iron teaching us from that book, that textbook. And so I know a lot about it, but this reviewer didn't know anything about it. And I, we went back and forth and back and forth. And and finally, uh, Gene Paul agreed to publish it. He thought I'd answered all the arguments this reviewer had, but I I decided at that time, this paper is important. If, if the iron rate theory is correct, which it is, is in textbooks in physical chemistry, if the iron rate theory is correct, then this practically proves cold fusion is correct. This excess heat, the rate of excess heat under typical conditions fits so very closely with the diffusion of deuterons in palladium based on the Arwin theory. And therefore I thought that if I sent it to a major journal, it might really change public opinion. And I, I really thought that could happen. And that's when I said, well, I'm just going to, I told Gene Paul, I, I was going to try to publish it elsewhere because I had such long battle with this reviewer and I, I thought it was important enough it should be published where other people could see it besides cold fusion people. So it, it definitely involves physical chemistry. The iron rate theory is part of physical chemistry. It's in every textbook. And so I thought this journal would be receptive to it. But I didn't know that an editor that I had trouble with years ago was still the editor-in-chief, and that's Dr. Schatz. Because years ago, Martin 
towards the end of his career, wanted me to get three or four papers that he'd written published. I still have the full manuscript sitting in my office right here. But he, and, and so I started with the first one, which was on calorimetry only. And it was a blank system, platinum instead of platinum as the cathode, and zero excess heat. And it shows the, the rate of uh, a recombination is very small, 1.1 milliwatts is all it contributes. And I thought, this it's not even a paper on excess heat. It's a, it just shows how good his calorimetry was. And, and this editor at that time, this was 2005, sent this paper out for review. He doesn't even do that now. But he sent out for review. Two of the three reviewers agreed that it should be published. And uh, But then Chats turned around, this same editor, and said he was not going to publish it. His editor, in, he said his readers were not interested in this subject. And, he, and despite two reviewers favoring this manuscript, he would not publish it. And, and as soon as I sent the paper in and saw that Dr. Schatz was still the chief editor, I knew I had problems. So I knew his attitude. And sure enough, uh, I, I got the regular form letter saying they were happy to re- receive my paper, et cetera, et cetera, which is just a form letter. But within a day or two, very quickly, I got a letter from Dr. Schatz saying their policy was not to publish co-fusion papers. And therefore, he was returning my manuscript. Of course, today it's by email, and you don't really return it. You just tell people that you're not going to, he's not going to send it out for review. And I really wanted it to go out for review. What I wanted to find out if I'm correct or not. Is this very important new science that the Iron Theory more or less proves cold fusion? That's what I thought it would do. And instead, I don't even get it sent out for review. So naturally, I'm quite angry, and that started my letters to Dr. Schatz and asked him just to send it out for review. Even if it doesn't get published, send it out for review. i just like to see what reviewers might say. And so that's where it stands right now. Dr. Schatz never answered anything after that. None of my letters, he just, even my letters to the ACS, they go without any answer. And therefore, I wrote this letter to the editor, and I hope that it might get published in the Chemical Engineering News. Now, I don't know if the whole ACS structure is against cold fusion, but definitely this one editor, Journal of Physical Chemistry, is definitely against any cold fusion manuscript. Just wasted time to even send them to him. Mm. So that that's where it stands today. And I, I've just been writing several letters, but I get, don't get any answer back from Dr. Schatz. I wrote complaints to the ACS. I don't get answers back. I'm trying. The final thing I'm trying is the the editor to the a letter to the editor to see if they'll publish my letter. And that that's where it stands today. Mm. And, and incidentally, I I did. We drew a paper on cold fusion the year before by another person in, in, in uh, I think she's in Norway or Sweden. Anyway, she's an associate editor of Journal of Physical Chemistry, and she sent me a cold fusion paper out to review, and I reviewed it for him, but I didn't recommend publication not without major changes. So I thought the field was now open to cold fusion papers, hmm. and that's why I went ahead and sent it in. Hmm. And, and furthermore, my plans right now, I'm going to submit this letter to other major, I mean this paper, because I still think it's very important. It, in my mind, it proves cold fusion, if iron rate theory is correct. It comes very close, I think, at least, to proving it. 
And so I'm going to next send it to nature. I'm going to send it to science. I expect they're going to reject it, but I'm going to get a list of who rejects it. Uh, eventually, I'll find some place to publish it, but I'm going to start at the very top journals and work down mm. until I get it published. And that's my plan right now. But with this cold fusion meeting in ICF 21 coming up, uh, it'll probably be on hold until after that meeting. But that's where it stands right now. I think it's very important, and I'm going to fight and fight to get it published at, at a top-rated journal in work my way downhill, but no, none of them will even send it out for review. All I want now is for it to be sent out to review, to see what reviewers might say. Hmm. Well, but anyway, we'll you be... can tell I'm upset. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be uh, following and see how your list of publications develops. <laughs> right. Uh, well, and, I, and I'll keep everybody informed on what major journals reject the paper without review because it's cold fusion. And that'll be part of the history as well. And we'll be right back with Dr. Melvin Miles after this. Join me at the 21st International Conference on Condensed Matter Nuclear Science, ICCF 21, being held in the Laurie Student Center at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, U.S. The conference runs June 3rd through 8th 2018. Registration is now open at iccf21.com. Follow up with the Energy Science Conference this July 5th through 8th in Hayden, Idaho, U.S. For more on that, go to energyscienceconference.com. And we're back with Dr. Melvin Miles, an electrochemist and Lenner experimentalist. Well, Dr. Miles, will you be attending the big conference in June? And if so, what will you be talking about? Yes, I, I submitted three papers. And, and of course, I, I, I told them two of the papers could be posters, but the, the one paper that I and, and, and uh, Dave Nagel and Steve Kaczynski are interested in is the palladium boron uh, material. And so I wrote a review article, a review abstract on the palladium boron, the seven out of eight experiments that gave ecstasy to China Lake, and the one experiment I did at New Hydrogen Energy Laboratory in Japan in 1957-1958, December, January time period, uh, that gave Exocet, a completely different electrode that I took with me, made by uh, Dr. Imam at NRL. And, and the, the interesting and thing I about playing boron... And I think you actually, you meant to say 1997, 1998, when oh, you were oh, at I don't, I don't remember what, what I said, but that was 1997, 1998, December, January. Yes, right. yes. But the interesting thing to me about playing boron... Uh, you know, you, and Dr. Imam told me this, when you arc milk uh, the palladium boron material, the, the palladium, uh, the boron in the material is very reactive in any oxygen. It's actually called an oxygen getter because it just goes and ties up oxygen. So it, it reacts with any oxygen in the palladium and forms B2O3. Well, B2O3 has a much lower density than molten palladium. So in the arc melting, 
it flows to the surface and skims off the surface. And so this is another method, like the crack pneumonia method of uh, Johnson Matthew uh, by Martin Fleischmann. This is another method that gives you plating with very low oxygen content. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, anyway, that's why I think the plating barn is so important. And that's my abstract is to review this, the work that I've done on plating barn. Uh, six out of seven, at, you know, seven out of eight at China Lake gave excess heat. One out of one at NHE in Japan gave excess heat. And one experiment I tried just last year, last 2017 in in March, April time frame, also gave excess heat. I'll be talking about those. So I've had I've had a very good success at plating bar on every experiment except one has given me excess heat. And the one that did not uh, it had a flaw in it. Uh, in the plate, the boron in, makes plate in very hard material, and so it's hard to make it into a rod. And in swaging, they had folded over one area over another, and this is like a big crack. And I saw that before the experiment, and sure enough, it didn't work. And so you can almost eliminate the one that didn't work for a good reason. But in my hands, at least, every experiment practically is given excess heat. Now, I know other people have tried plate number one and uh, some other people, like at NRL, and they report no excess heat. But I guess the only answer is they're doing something different than what I do. Maybe they're not as careful in keeping uh, things clean in the experiment. Who knows? Maybe they... They have more contamination than I have. Maybe they don't make the counter electrodes symmetrical like I do, which is very important. A lot of, a lot of those steps are important. And if you don't do those, you may not get the excess heat. But that's the only reason I can give why other people have not seen it. But Ed, Ed, Ed Storms did do one experiment on it, and he reported excess heat for plating barn as well. Hmm. So anyway, that's the... My main paper they'll be giving as an oral presentation. The other two papers are posters. One is about the Fleischmann letters that you mentioned. I'll be there, the poster, to discuss anything about the letters anybody might want. I'll have a a few things to post up. I'm not going to make it a long poster presentation. And the other paper is uh, a derivation by Martin Fleischmann to show that there's never any steady state in a cold fusion experiment. By that he means there's never a time where the temperature remains exactly constant over a long time period. And in deriving that, Martin goes through about seven, eight pages of complicated mathematics that uh, are hard to follow. I have difficulty following it. Uh, and uh, I'm sure most people wouldn't be able to follow it. But I came up with a simpler way to show this, and that's my second poster to show a simple way to so that you don't have conditions in a cold fusion experiment where you could expect the temperature to stay constant. As long as you're electrolyzing D2O in an open cell and the D2O escape, escaping, the cell constant is changing constantly and the uh, amount of D2O in the cell is changing constantly. And therefore, constant changes mean constant change in temperature. So that's the other posters I'll be presenting. Well, Dr. Miles, we wish you success in all of your research, and in particular, the Palladian boron. I hope you are going to have uh, success with more excess heat there, and I look forward to seeing you at the ICCF 21.
Okay, uh, thank you. And I could mention one other thing about the plane of Boron. Uh, Dave Nagel and Steve Kaczynski are trying to get Dr. Imam to make some more material or supervise somebody else to make it <laughs> and get other laboratories to test it under some, my supervision and see if we can get it reproduced in another laboratory or several different laboratories and then write up a paper that hopefully might get published in a major journal. We can solve that problem. Mm. Fabulous. Well, Dr. Melvin Miles, thank you for being with us today. Okay, you're welcome. I'm glad to help out. I, anything I can do to help get the knowledge out since journals don't do it. We've been speaking with electrochemist Dr. Melvin Miles, a Lenner researcher and former U.S. Navy scientist. You can find more of his work, including the collection of letters of Melvin Miles and Martin Fleischman, in the Lenner Library at lenner.org. That's L-E-N-R dot O-R-G. And that's it for today. Find more episodes of the Cold Fusion Now podcast on our website at coldfusionnow.org and subscribe on iTunes. I want to shout out to our newest esteemers. <laughs> you let us know that somebody cares, and I am so grateful. Listeners, you can go to our page at patreon.com slash coldfusionnow and make a pledge. When we deliver, you reward the work. You can also donate direct through PayPal on our website at coldfusionnow.org. Until next time, I'm Ruby Carrot.